This show is made possible by members and donors who sign up at bestoftheleft.com and also by gotomeeting.com, green technology helping reduce the need for business travel. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from On the Media, Need to Know, Mark Fiore, The Daily Show, The Bugle, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, The Young Turks, and Real Time with Bill Maher with a bonus audio clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from Slate.com. The bedrock belief in modern politics is that money corrupts. The axiom plays out from sea to shining sea, or from Michael Bloomberg to Arnold Schwarzenegger. We seem to like the idea, the elegant simplicity of the notion that money buys elections. I will tell you this, Brooke. If you go on the air, as you're doing here, and tell people that campaign spending matters much, 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 much less in electoral outcomes than they think, people will hate you for it. (laughs) Stephen Dubner is a journalist, co-author of Freakonomics, and host of the popular Freakonomics podcast. You have written about some research that your partner in crime, Stephen Levitt, did back in 1994. Can you tell me about his methodology? This was back when he was in graduate school, and as an economist in training, he was doing a little bit of futz around in the political science realm, and because he was manually typing in from the congressional record the names of candidates who ran against each other in years and years and years of congressional races, he began to notice a pattern, which was that there were quite a few instances in which the two same candidates ran against each other repeatedly. And what Levitt found was that if you looked at the congressional races where the same two candidates ran against each other repeatedly, well, the appeal of the candidate presumably didn't change a whole lot. You'd have to control for incumbency and things like that. But what often did change was the amount of money that was spent. And what that allowed him to do was to try to isolate the causal effect of the money itself. How important is it to spend a lot more money? And the result was, I'll be honest with you, I found it to be rather shocking you can double the amount you spend and raise your share of the vote by about 1%. Similarly, if you're winning an election and you cut your spending in half, you'll lose only about 1% of the vote. Okay, but Stephen Levitt drew a lot of his conclusions from a study done back in the mid-90s. Hasn't the growing amount of campaign cash and now the Citizens United Supreme Court decision, which opens the floodgates even more, doesn't that make a difference? I would say two things about it. First of all, even though Levitt's first study in this was several years back, Similar studies and replications have been done since, and the findings are quite consistent. Also, even though the total this year for all congressional and Senate races will be in the neighborhood of about $2 billion, it sounds like so much, but compared to what? I mean, compared to GDP, even compared to, <laughs> compared to how much Americans spend on, I don't know, chewing gum, aluminum foil, iTunes downloads in one day, one week, it's really a pitifully small amount if you think about it. But compared to the rest of the world, it isn't. No, compared to the rest of the world, isn't it? It's a good indicator of how rich a country we are that we can afford to flush $2 billion down the toilet every year trying to influence elections when it's almost inconsequential. Winning candidates do raise more money, but the relationship between the money and their winning, it's just a correlation. It's not causal. So imagine you go out onto the street and it's raining really hard and everybody's got an umbrella. 
And if you didn't know any better, you'd think, oh, man, those umbrellas are making it rain. If only those people would put away the umbrellas, the rain would stop, right? That's kind of the way people think about campaign spending and winning elections. The people who win do raise and spend more money, but the reason they have more money is because they're a more attractive candidate. In a moment, we'll be hearing from political scientist Paul Friedman. He's researched the issue and concluded that the volume of ads in an election does have the power to sway a potentially decisive percentage of voters. Even if we can influence them a little, might that be enough in this 50-50 country of ours where uh, an election can be decided on very slender margins? Maybe that 100 bucks might make a difference. It, it might. And, you know, my doing a rain dance might make it rain, too. Absolutely. And, and, you know, the more you believe it, the more you're going to see signs that it's true. And, of course, you're going to find political consultants. Of course, you're going, you're going to find professors of political science, too. You're going to find candidates, every candidate. You're going to find campaign managers who tell you the money is key. What I'm telling you is that if you actually use data to examine this question, rather than polling, rather than the kind of received wisdom of political consultants and their kind of gut instinct, what the data show is that it's just not true. Does, does that not mean that there might be a particular ad campaign on TV that really, really works more than the average? Absolutely that happens. And there are anomalies all the time. The problem is what we do with the media is we take anomalies and we report them because that's what news is. So you're going to read somewhere in the next week or so the story about how one great ad turned the tide in some race and someone who was trailing 51 to 49 roared back because of this TV ad and won 53%. First of all, it's very hard to isolate the effect of that TV ad. And second of all, even if it's true, that's one race out of how many? And the fact is that if you look over the long stretch, you just don't find a causal relationship between spending and electoral outcome. As my colleagues and I documented on this week's Need to Know television show, about 50 million Americans cast their ballots on vulnerable voting machines. There is a school of thought, though, that there are bigger problems with the way that we vote in this country. Matthew Iglesias is a blogger at Think Progress who's written a lot about issues with the way Americans vote. He starts with the idea that we vote too much. In a blog post that he wrote in January, he contrasted a voter in New York City with the equivalent voter in Toronto in Canada. Our hypothetical Canadian casts three votes in every election, one for a member of city council, one for a member of the Ontario Parliament, and one for a member of the federal parliament. Matt Iglesias says, let's contrast that with the number of votes the average New Yorker casts. You vote for a city councilman, you vote for a borough president, you vote for a city public advocate, a city comptroller, a mayor, of course, a state comptroller, a state attorney general, a state lieutenant governor, a governor, a state senator, a state representative, 
a district attorney for the county. Then you have two senators for the U.S. Senate, one House of Representatives member, the president, and then a whole series of slates of judges. Right, which I was just looking at the at the ballot that we're going to be uh, voting on Tuesday here in New York City. Judge of the Civil Court, county level, vote for three. <laughs> Judge of the Civil Court, district level, vote for two. Justice of the Supreme Court, vote for three. So that's that's close to two dozen positions. Now, one of the things that the computer scientists told me when I was reporting my piece for this week's broadcast is that this is one of the reasons why we have to use these complicated systems to count votes. But you've got another beef with this, that that it has a bad effect on, on government. Step us through the argument. Well, you know, any given person is only going to spend so much time paying attention to politics. And realistically, you can't monitor all these elected officials. Most of the people voting don't know what all these judges are. They don't know the difference between a state and a city controller. They can really only name a handful of the people who are representing them. And it just doesn't make sense to have people voting for many more people than they can even keep track of. This is you've used the phrase before, low information voter. I mean, is this what this is leading to people who just don't know who they're voting for? Right, exactly. I mean, it's well known that most people don't know a huge amount of uh, politics, but we make it unnecessarily difficult by multiplying responsibilities and asking people to vote over and over and over again for a million different office holders. Isn't this, though, sort of emblematic of the way we Americans think democracy is supposed to work? I mean, we, we're supposed to like the idea that we're voting for the dog catcher, literally, in some jurisdictions. Yeah, I mean, we're supposed to like it, and there's a long tradition of this sort of thing in the United States, but I just don't think it realistically functions in terms of the way of how do people live their lives. I mean, you have elections in in Louisiana, you elect the county coroner, but, you know, does that really make sense? Does anyone know anything about the coroner or what he's doing? Um, You know, so it's tradition, but I'm not sure that anyone would miss it when it was gone. Well, let's get to sort of a brass tacks question, though. If we wanted to change this... How do we do it? I mean, there's sort of a move afoot right now, a lot of people saying we need to get rid of elected judgeships. Is that sort of the leading edge of maybe starting to cut back on the amount of elected positions in American governance? Judgeships seems like the leading edge because in many states, judges aren't elected. In most states, they are. But the states where you don't have elected judges get along just fine. Um, You know, in the situation in general, it differs from place to place. But there have been surveys of how do municipalities do that elect their treasurers versus municipalities that appoint them? And it turns out that appointed treasurers uh, make much better investment decisions. So hopefully, as state and local governments need to relook some of their budgetary practices, this is something that they're going to take a look at and say, you know, we should have this money managed by a professional rather than by an elected official who nobody's heard of. Do you have any idea where this comes from? I mean, why we are sort of outliers in the world in terms of the number of elected positions? Is it rooted in our mistrust of bureaucrats or is it something that we've always done? Well, there's two waves of it. One is that America is simply a much older republic than you see in most countries. So we started off with very primitive transportation and communications technologies and a lot of very, very small political units. Then layered on top of that, there was a big wave of changes in the in the teens and 20s associated with the progressive movement, where they felt that you could cut down on sort of corruption by reducing the number of, of appointed people and increasing the number of, of independently elected people. Uh, nowadays, we have a lot of civil 
civil service rules and things that take care of those corruption concerns. And of course, you know, with modern media and telecommunications, there's not a particular need for everyone to be within a couple miles of an elected official. Practice does vary enormously from state to state. New Jersey, for example, only has one statewide elected official. Uh, almost every other state has, you know, uh, as many as half a dozen. Okay, so that was number three on our list of three things you need to know about what is uh, sort of messed up about the machinery of elections in the U.S. in general. Number two on the list is that we vote on the wrong day of the week. Why is it that we vote on Tuesdays anyway? You know, I've heard that the pegging of Tuesday as the election day had something to do with the time it would take to travel from farms into town to go vote. I'm not sure that that's correct, but the point is, is it tends to depress turnout to have it during a day when, when people need to vote. It could be pretty easily moved to Saturday with some kind of provision for people who have religious issues with that, or else election day could be a national holiday, which is the case in many countries. Let's go to number one on the list, which is something that you have blogged about a lot, which is essentially to say that we vote the wrong way in a very specific way. We vote in a winner-take-all fashion. You're a big supporter of some of the alternatives that are used in parliamentary democracies. Explain how you would like to see that work in the U.S. if we were to use something like proportional representation here. Well, you know, with a proportional system, what you would do is instead of dividing a state up into a whole bunch of districts where the boundaries are very gerrymandered and then everyone goes and votes and whoever gets the most votes wins, even if it's only 37% of the people, you would instead say, let's have everyone in Iowa vote. And if the Democrats get 60% of the votes, then they get 60% of the seats. If they get 75% of the votes, they get 75% of the seats. And that way you wouldn't have this huge consequences turning on, do I get 49% or do I get 51%? It doesn't make a ton of sense to have such huge consequences tip on the knife's edge like that. But doesn't that then disconnect the member of the House from a geographical area? I mean, don't we like the fact that our member of the House of Representatives represents our district, can bring home the bacon, can get those earmarks, or can become a specialist in the issues that are of concern to that area? I mean, sometimes we like it, but then we spend a lot of time saying that we think earmarks are bad, saying that special interests are bad, and saying that, you know, we we wish that politics would be a little bit more high-minded, that there would be a little bit more compromise. And we spend a lot of time bemoaning the constant gerrymandering and the small number of competitive races. And moving to multiple-member districts and more proportional system would address all of those concerns. It's true that there would be some costs, but I think largely it would be an effective way of addressing a lot of concerns people have. You've also talked every now and then about the idea of the single transferable vote. How does that work and how would you apply it to American politics? There's a big article in the current issue of New York Magazine, I believe, and it's talking about maybe Sarah Palin could become president if Michael Bloomberg ran as like a third party candidate, kind of split the anti-Palin vote, and so then she sneaks in with like 44% support. The idea of a trans vote is to make that impossible. You would come and you would say, this guy's my first choice, this guy's my second choice, this guy's my third choice, and then you would go and see, does anyone have a majority? And if they don't, you strike out the person who finished in last place, and then you look at their second choices and redistribute. And so that way you make sure that you end up with a winner who's actually preferred by a majority of people. All of this 
has reminded me what an elusive concept a majority is. It seems so simple. If you have half plus one, you have a majority. But then the idea of transferring that to a representative body becomes incredibly complicated. I mean, there's so many different ways the countries around the world deal with this. I mean, I guess the point that you're trying to make is we need to think of other ways and not just the way that we traditionally think about majority. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, we have a a tradition of doing it in a certain way. Uh, Basically, we have a system that makes it simplest to just go count. But it's not necessarily the best way to achieve the goals that we have as a country. You know, the purpose of representative democracy is to, on the one hand, produce a high-quality political leadership, and on another hand, produce a situation where everyone's interests are accounted for. And I'm not sure that our current system really does a great job of that. Matthew Iglesias, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. If you're like most Americans, then the politics of the last 30 years has driven you to the point where you're totally ready to pack up and move to Canada. Or maybe New Zealand, because it looked beautiful in Lord of the Rings. In any case, you're totally serious about it this time, and you're going. Well, you're in luck, because with GoToMeeting, you can work from anywhere and still meet with clients and coworkers online while sharing your screen with one or many people all at once. Visit GoToMeeting.com and use the promo code PODCAST for a 45-day free trial. You could be settled in your new Vancouver home and join socialized medicine before you had to pay a dime. That's gotomeeting.com, promo code PODCAST, for this special 45-day free trial. University of Virginia political science professor Paul Friedman also believes that campaign ads don't change that many minds, but maybe they change just enough to make a difference. He's the co-author of Campaign Advertising and American Democracy, and he had long observed that political advertising was the whipping boy of American politics, so maligned, so loathed, so powerful. So, he and four colleagues set out in 1998 to gauge the real power of the ads by examining a decade's worth of data. They looked at precisely where ads had been broadcast, in what races, to which audiences, and they cross-referenced that information with data from surveys, asking how the ads affected the votes of viewers. What researchers found was that most voters are exposed to hundreds of TV ads during a campaign season. Voters in hotly contested districts could see thousands of ads. As to the impact of the advertising, well, what Friedman and his colleagues learned upends the conventional wisdom that campaign ads, especially negative ads, are so toxic that they actually suppress voter turnout. What we found is that, in fact, election campaigns are a lot like fights on the schoolyard. Do kids run away and say, we don't want to participate, we feel depressed and alienated? No, people run over to see the action, and they begin asking questions. What are they fighting about? Maybe there's reason to expect that election campaigns are like schoolyard fights. And in a nutshell, your conclusions? When it comes to political information, most Americans are fairly ill-informed. And what ads do is to really serve as nutritional supplements. 
they're jam-packed in some cases with relevant information about the candidates, about the race, about the issues, coded in an emotional, easy-to-swallow wrapping. The vast majority of the attack ads I've seen take nominal facts about legislative votes or personal history, and then they twist them into big lies. And I'm talking about Republicans and Democrats both. And the idea that these things motivate voters to me is terrifying. (laughs) Nutritional supplements, isn't it more like tar and nicotine? Well, nutritional supplements in the sense that at the end of a campaign, voters who have seen more ads simply know more than voters who have seen fewer ads. Certainly, some ads are misleading. I don't think anybody's suggesting that advertising can be a substitute for a C-SPAN debate on a particular issue. We're not making policy scholars out of viewers because we bombard them with a bunch of 30-second ads. But the more ads a voter has seen during the course of an election campaign, the more likely he or she is to care about the outcome of the race and the more likely they are to actually vote on election day. Can you quantify this? There are many different factors that combine to shape whether or not an individual is going to turn out to vote on election day. Education is one of the most important factors. Partisanship and how strong an attachment to one of the political parties you feel. Whether or not you're contacted by a campaign, the more money you have, the more likely you are to vote. In comparison to all of these factors... Television advertising has a relatively modest effect. We're talking about the margins. We're talking about increasing the probability of voter turnout by really less than 10 percentage points. Now, that's not huge, but it's not nothing. Many Senate races this cycle and many House races are going to be decided by very, very narrow margins. And so changing voter turnout by two percentage points or three percentage points can make or break an election outcome. Well, I guess you've talked me down from the ledge to some degree, but my takeaway from all of this is that whoever gets elected from either party, the only thing we're absolutely sure of is that he or she has just participated in a schoolyard fight. We're not simply at the mercy of the messages that campaigns and candidates put out for us. There's an important role for the media. There's an important role for academia. There's an important role for organizations like PolitiFact and FactCheck.org. There's a need to hold these candidates' feet to the fire. And that, I think, is an important part of the campaign advertising landscape. So considering how marginal the effect is. What about another piece of conventional wisdom that says that he who has the most money and can purchase the most media tonnage is going to prevail? One of Barack Obama's real advantages in 2008 was that he had much, much, much more money than John McCain to spend on television ads. And indeed, he did. He outbroadcast John McCain by a wide margin. But in the primaries, John McCain was out-advertised and outspent by Mitt Romney. And so it's certainly not always the case that he or she who has the most money wins, but all else equal, you don't want to lose an election by one vote with one extra dollar in your campaign coffer. Paul, thank you very much. Bob, it's my pleasure. Paul Friedman is an associate professor in the Department of Politics at the University of Virginia and co-author of Campaign Advertising and American Democracy.
And it looks like the Republicans are victorious in this round of... Tell them what they've won, Johnny. Well, Bob, America will receive a brand new set of anti-climate science politicians. Two out of 100 scientists can't be wrong. These are the best non-science science experts you'll find. The nation will also receive the incredible Cuddle Me Now leadership figure with built-in plan for helping the downtrodden. The single most important thing we want to achieve is for President Obama to be a one-term president. The lucky winners will also receive a commemorative Republican debt coin. Heads, you've got two wars, tax cuts for the richest 1%, and corporate loopholes. Tails, you've got the elusive and recently hatched deficit hawk. Cheap. America will also receive a once-in-a-lifetime chance to remodel your very own Constitution. Take out that dated 14th Amendment for newborns and replace your 17th Amendment with the retro stylings of the Gilded Age. And finally, you'll take an all-expenses-billed trip to the magical kingdom of Crazyland, where there are no rich and poor, just interconnected. Some more interconnected than others. A land where women submit to their husbands. Where men continue political dynasties, torturers change careers, and Mama Grizzlies maul religious freedom for fun and sport. With this wonderful assortment of prizes, America, get ready, get set, now, legislate! Trip to Crazy Land made possible by Tea Party and Tea Party Express. Wardrobe by Mama Grizzly Style. The latest political fashions for the newly angry. Mad as Hell made possible by Pendulum Swing and Patient Productions. You can support this show at no additional cost yourself when you shop at Amazon after clicking through to their site using the Amazon banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through using that banner once and then bookmark that page to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal, but Amazon will donate around 7-8% of your order to this show without adding a dime to your bill. This doesn't take much effort on your part and costs you nothing, but makes a huge difference supporting the show. Thanks so much for your help. The new Congress has arrived in Washington, D.C., and if the Republicans' campaign rhetoric is anything to go by, it's going to be a bumpy ride. I'll bring the axe to Washington. We've come to take our government back. Somebody has to go to Washington and knock the hell out of the place. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, can you tell me where I can get my ID badge? <laughs> Thanks a lot, Dolores. So now that the voters have opened up a Republican of whoop-ass on Washington, I guess the first order of business is... Are these load-bearing walls? Because they're coming down! We have to have an adult conversation how we're going to get rid of the debt. We need to have an adult conversation. It's long overdue. I'm ready to have an adult conversation. This is getting us toward that adult stage of conversation we need to have. Chris, it's time for us as Americans to have an adult conversation with each other about the serious challenges our country faces. <laughs> one guy had an axe. But I, I see it's only November, but the 2011 talking points are out. With one utterly contrived phrase, the angry pitchfork-wielding insurgents have transformed themselves into patient diplomats. But you know what? Some give and take, some back and forth. Some compromise, adult conversation, not a bad thing. 
A free and open exchange of ideas? All right. You brought it up, Republicans. Why don't you guys start? What should we do? We can't raise taxes in the middle of a recession. Cap and tax, that's a tax on energy. That's off the table. I want to make sure this health care bill never, ever, ever is implemented. I refuse to compromise on the rule of law. I refuse to grant amnesty. No compromise on ending the era of runaway spending. So I see by adult conversation, you mean the kind of conversation where the adult says, no. <laughs> Because I said so. <laughs> so wait, it's like the adult conversation where it's adults talking to children. But if the Republicans are the adults, who are the children? You know, the ones who aren't particularly interested in hearing the reasons. They just want to hear, yes or no, can I borrow the car, yes or no? Like so many that are coming into office, uh, you are talking about cutting spending. I want to tick through three items and just try to get a yes or no from you. Would you make cuts in Social Security? I think that we certainly have a social security system that is broke into the future and that we need to sit down at the table, have some adult conversations, and figure out how it can become viable into the future. So is that a yes that you would consider cuts in social security in some way, shape, or form? Well, if that was a simple answer, I think we would have had solutions before uh, this. <laughs> that congresswoman is such a patient mom. <laughs> Sorry, honey, you just can't. <laughs> so the I just need a yes or no answer technique isn't working. Perhaps litigating the issue is a more adult way of having the conversation. You've been asked over and over where you want to cut and what you've said is across the board. Is that is that correct? Uh, everywhere. Everywhere. Now, but then here's what mystifies me. You're a doctor and I think, am I correct, 50% of your practice came from Medicare and Medicaid, government, federal reimbursements to you for doing, for practicing medicine, is that correct? Right. Now, am I correct then that you've said, and I gotta read this right here, that the one place you don't want to cut is doctor reimbursement rates? <laughs> wow. That's some meat and potatoes litigating, calling on the senator's professional experience to draw him out on a specific approach to cutting Medicare spending. That's why. When I started in 93, fees are now 50% of what they were in 1993. So they already have been cut by 50%. What you have to picture is you want to cut them by 40% more, fine, go ahead, but there may not be any doctors left seeing Medicare patients. Mm -hmm. Boom! Strong defense with a touch of the slippery slope on the end. A little hyperbolic, but still on point. Serious. Perhaps we can get through this on a purely adult level. Senator, doctor, I'll call you both. I don't want me mean to be impertinent here, but what was your peak income over the last decade? What's the most you earned in I any one year? This is where the rubber meets the road. <laughs> we have arrived at the Rubicon. Either we will continue with an adult conversation about our nation's budget, or... If you want to make this about me personally, you're not going to have a real intelligent well, discussion. Well. But if you want to make this, if you want to make this about, I mean, do I want to go into your personal past and talk about your past on this program? I don't think Senator. so. <laughs> so, we can talk about this in an adult way, the way I want to talk about it, my ground rules, or I can remind everyone you used to f hookers. <laughs> to you. It's your choice. So the Republicans are the adults. The media is the needy brat who want it now. Who are the Democrats in this family?
What if we moved it up to a million dollars? Everyone below a million dollars will get a tax cut, but the millionaires and billionaires won't. I propose we extend all the tax cuts for two years. I'm willing to compromise um, on extending those income tax cuts uh, for a number of years. It'd also be a great opportunity for the White House to reach out to the business community and say, hey, we don't have all the answers. Let's work with you on what those tax cuts ought to look like. Oh, the Democrats are the step-parents. The ones who will do anything to keep the peace and anything to get you to... Just love them. <laughs> the ones who bought you the MacBook Air for Christmas, even though you ruined Thanksgiving by announcing at the table that you were thankful that someday they would die. <laughs> do you like the computer, though? What do I have to do to get you to call me dad instead of Rick? Midterm election update now, and, well, it's pure political nature, Andy, in a dance as old as time. <laughs> the party in power in the US will have the electorate kick it in the balls during the midterms. <laughs> and sure enough, Obama and the Democrats received that electoral nutshot on November the 2nd, <laughs> and it's a nutshot strong enough uh, to lose them control of Congress, but not quite strong enough that they would crumple to the floor and lose the Senate too. Uh, the results may force the White House to now refocus their agenda, and it will certainly mean that they have to work with the Republicans on budgeting. Which is like saying that you have to work with a fat crocodile on budgeting. <laughs> the crocodile is going to obstinately refuse to help at all in those negotiations, and if you try to show it a potential compromise bill, it'll either take a dump on it or try to eat it. <laughs> That's it, what he's dealing with here. And it just want to spend all his money on sunglasses as well. <laughs> One of the key questions for this administration is what to do about U.S. debt. Now, in response, Obama has appointed a bipartisan commission on reducing national debt, charged uh, with coming up with a way to reduce the debt in a way that will piss off as many people fewer than absolutely everyone as possible. <laughs> and it is, of course, not going to be easy. Europe has been sporadically in flames over this very issue for much of the last six months. Uh, the commission outlined on Wednesday, uh, a provocative and economically ambitious package of spending cuts and tax increases, and probably should have done so wearing crash helmets to protect themselves when chairs started inevitably flying across the room towards them. <laughs> Alan K. Simpson, uh, the Republican co-chairman, uh, is under absolutely no il illusion of just how shit his job is. He had a very nice turn of phrase uh, regarding the situation America finds itself in. He said, it's time to lay it out on the table and lets the American people start to chew on it. <laughs> Isn't that fantastic? Crumbs, I believe Bill Clinton was the first first politician to say that. <laughs> You're right, I think it was a direct quote. That's why it had so much resonance. Clinton was way ahead of his time. I do feel sorry for poor little Barack Obama. And, yeah. Um, he, I mean, those those halcyon days when he was shouting "Yes, we can" mm -hmm. for every uh, every possible camera do seem uh, a long time away. And now you feel feel you know worried. To, oh, does, he, does, he doesn't really say it anymore, does he? 
No. Which we can. I mean, I guess he would have to add brackets, provided that the innately obstructive nature of democratic politics does not prevent us from doing so. <laughs> and more likely, no, we f***ing can't. <laughs> and um, it's interesting, actually, looking at this from a British perspective, because over here we have David Cameron as, uh, as Prime Minister. And, um, you know, he's doing adequately... I think in the in the polls, not great, not terribly. But the, the great problem for Barack Obama was the expectations, which he made the crucial and schoolboy error of raising them. Yes. Whereas David Cameron became Prime Minister with everyone in this country, A, not really wanting him, and B, expecting him to be shit. Right. So he is he is in a absolute pole position politically, Cameron. And um, Obama must be rather jealous, I think. It's so polarised, America now. And that makes what this uh, bipartisan debt commission has achieved, even more remarkable. Especially after the midterm elections, it seemed as though there was literally nothing the two parties could agree on. But this commission has now somehow managed to unite the Republicans and the Democrats in that they both absolutely hate these proposals. <laughs> Deep spending cuts are in there to piss off the Democrats, substantial tax increases to piss off the Republicans, to ensure that chairs are being thrown at them from both sides of the aisle in an inspiring demonstration of bipartisan fury. <laughs> it's amazing. The level of froth can be seen from space with a naked eye, apparently. And it does appear that America has gone fully caked in crazy. And um, it does seem there's quite a strong just anti-politics vote, as yes. we had over here in the general election as well. And there just seem to be a... The general view amongst the public that the lunatics are running the asylum, which may be true, but it does not take away from the fact that the asylum is still full of other lunatics. Here is your next quote. Unattractive men come here and suddenly they have women who are interested in them. That was Politico editor Jim Vandehei describing all the dangerous temptations for incoming freshmen arriving where? Uh, Capitol Hill. Yes, exactly right. The orientation for freshman members of Congress is nothing like a college freshman orientation. One is a two-week-long bacchanal of people finally free to drink and have sex for the first time. The other takes place at a college. The, <laughs> the breakout star of the session this time around was conservative Republican Andy Harris of Maryland. He got elected campaigning against Obama's health care plan. Then this week he surprised his fellow congressman when he stood up and complained about the month it will take for his government health care plan to kick in. <laughs> Quote, why does it have to take so long? And what am I going to do without 28 days of health care? Apparently he was worried what might happen if he couldn't get his prescription anti-irony drugs. <laughs> he wasn't done though, he asked a follow-up question. Quote, can I purchase, this is true. He said, quote, can I purchase insurance from the government to cover the gap? Yes. <laughs> Now you can. He invented the public option. <laughs> <laughs> who, 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 
who coaches them? I mean, who does the introductory, you know? Yeah, who's like the Rush chairman? Yeah, it's like that. It's, I believe it's, it's not so much other... They're, they're spoken to by other members of Congress, but there's a lot of sort of administrators, people who tell them how to operate their voting machines and that sort of thing. Yeah, Plus, in the dorms, there's somebody yeah. to There's got to be. There's an, yeah. there's an RA. There's an RA, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, who trains them to, to betray the principles they came to Washington with? <laughs> So let's presuppose for a moment that you actually enjoyed this show. Now, if that's true, please consider supporting it with a $5 monthly membership. I actually quit my job as a climate activist to pursue this show full-time because this is where I felt like my talents could best be put to use and I could have the biggest impact on the world. But I really need your support to keep going. I produce 10 shows a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule posting shows at least every third day. So if all that is worth 5 bucks a month or as little as $55, a year, a little discount for you, please consider signing up for a membership at bestoftheleft.com. Members even receive bonus audio and video content on top of the rest that doesn't make it into the final cut of the show. So please, again, check out the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. Good afternoon, America. As many of you may know, uh, my party suffered a notable electoral defeat. A shellacking, a stomping, a bludgeoning of epic proportion. My political opponents now control one half of one of the three branches of government. And I am eager, willing, and hopeful to work with these forces of uncompromising opposition. Over the past two years, in order to compromise with the uncompromising, we made the stimulus smaller made healthcare reform more moderate, and made financial reform weaker. Uh, though we attempted to reach out across the aisle, the forces of uncompromise did not compromise. But I have a strong and abiding conviction that we can compromise even more for the uncompromising. We are all Americans. That is why I look forward to working with the leaders of uncompromise and realize there is much more compromise to be done. Though, admittedly, I have not always conveyed it effectively. My message of flexibility and submissiveness is a hopeful one. There are many things on which we can agree. The office of the presidency is not above compromise, the ultimate compromise. And though some may say the sky is blue, after talking with the leaders of uncompromise, we, as Americans, have found common ground. The sky is red. Barack Obama is just terrible. 
Republicans especially are coming down on him mercilessly. I bet they miss the good old days when they had a president they respected. Under Clinton, you had a president that was willing to compromise. Bill Clinton, who you depict in your book, yes. he was a flexible guy. He learned how to compromise with conservatives to get things done. If he's willing to work with us, as Bill Clinton did after the 1994 elections, to pass things like welfare reform, trade agreements, and the like, we'll certainly w work with him. That's right. <laughs> Republican darling Bill Clinton. <laughs> now, some of you may be too young to remember the feel-good 1990s <laughs> when a universally respected President Clinton reigned over an eight-year bipartisan love fest. <laughs> Let me give you a taste of what it felt like back then. Let the sun shine, let the sun shine. And by the way, that was what they were singing at his impeachment hearing. <laughs> anyway, that's how I remember it. Oh, but I was high for nearly the entire decade. President Clinton lied. He assaulted our legal system. Delivered an unworkable socialist health care scheme. The massive approach to health care, the extremism. New spending and new taxes. He wants to make radical changes. It's an un-American position. New age socialist. Someone who's dodged the draft is a draft dodger. I believe he's abused his power. He's defiled and debased the presidency. The mysterious death of Vince Foster. Vince Foster. Suicide. Why? Why? There was blonde hair, not Mr. Foster's on his t-shirt. Whose hair was it? Bill Clinton is a bad boy, a naughty boy. Misleading and untruthful. Fake and phony. Bill Clinton is probably even a nasty bad, naughty boy. Now, Senator Airport Rub and Tug is right. Bill Clinton was a bipartisan dream who Republican members of Congress tried to impeach when they weren't on the floor of the House of Representatives accusing him of having a hand in someone's murder. <laughs> but I guess for Republicans, Clinton is like a fine wine. The more you drink, the harder it is to remember, oh, I hate wine! <laughs> you know what, maybe the 90s weren't the love fest I remember, but I know there was a decade that was. I'm gonna give credit to President Reagan who tried to have comprehensive immigration reform. Ronald Reagan engaged directly and personally with Gorbachev. Ronald Reagan, who was just fierce in his commentary that torture is abhorrent. Ronald Reagan, who, despite his aversion to government, was willing to help save Social Security for future generations, working with Democrats. No, you hated that guy. <laughs> and if TiVo went back that far, we would show you the montage to prove it. <laughs> Let me reenact the 80s for you. Ronald Reagan is an ass. <laughs> I, I say, I say, a dickwad, a raving mad California jelly bean addict. The distinguished gentleman from Caricaturevania yields his time. Now, it's becoming very clear that the only thing worse than the president is the president who follows him. So I've got some advice for someone who could really use it. Our next president. Meet me at camera three. Congratulations. You ignorant, racist, Marxist, theocratic, godless chicken.
That's right. How's that taste? You, according to the things I've heard myself say about you, are the worst. Take a look at how we will cover your inauguration. And as I sit here today, watching the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man rampaging through the streets of my beloved city, one thing has popped into my head. This never would have happened under the leadership of a thoughtful uniter like George W. Bush. Wow, history does judge you differently. Because apparently every four years, history has a piano dropped on its head. John Stewart recently criticized cable news for overemphasizing the conflict between the left and the right and not concentrating on the real issue of corruption of the system. I disagree with him slightly on the left-right issue. The other side's not ever going to stop. And I think you'd be a fool to do unilateral disarmament and not fight back. If you don't fight back against that, you do real harm to the country, if you ask me. But I mainly want to talk about how right John Stewart is. A lot of time, Democratic loyalists will attack me for not supporting the party enough in its battles against the Republicans. They accuse me of not being enough of a team player. And they're absolutely right. I'm not. Why would I care if it's a Democrat or a Republican robbing me? I'm just trying to avoid the robbery. So if a Republican or Democratic senator is going to sell us out so they can get more campaign contributions or make more money as lobbyists when they retire, why in the world would I feel any obligation to support them? Maybe it's because I wasn't born into a family with set political traditions. In some households in America, you're either born a Steelers fan or a Cowboys fan, as a Democrat or Republican. It's part of your family's identity, and that's fine, but I didn't grow up that way. And I have no reason to maintain allegiance to any political team. So I guess I'm not a team player, and I don't want to be. In fact, the real problem is that we're getting played by both sides. They're playing good cop, bad cop with us. The Republicans come in and rough us up, and then the Democrats come in and tell us everything's going to be okay. As long as we do what the Republicans say and give it another round of tax cuts and special interest breaks to the interests that are paying both sides. Look, it's a shell game, and the only people winning are the people who set up the game in the first place through their campaign contributions to both sides. The big untold story is that politicians are not on your side. For the most part, they are not honest players. They are bought people. They are bought by the people who pay their bills. 
the lobbyists. They are not our representatives, they are their representatives. That's the systemic corruption that I believe John Stewart is referring to, that I talk about all the time, that the man who's going to do the next show here, Dylan Radigan, talks about. It doesn't even mean that the people in the system are bad people. It's that the system is set up to serve the interests of the people paying everybody. And that's the large corporations, the rich, the powerful, and their lobbyists. That's what we all need to focus on. That's what ultimately conservatives, liberals, and all Americans can rally to fight against. That's what we need to change. And I'm glad that there is now finally a little bit more attention being paid to it. And let's see if we can all build on that together. I, uh, I, like a lot of people who uh, voted for President Obama, in certainly one of the best days I, I had in the last decade was being able to vote for him. Um, just, but I would like to say to him with all uh, due respect to please take off your pink tutu because it's time to put on the boxing gloves and go fighting for the people. This has got. This has got to. Yeah. They, they, cave- no, I'm. No, <laughs> yeah. no, this guy. You're right. He's well. well they're they're not- caving in on the Bush tax cuts already. He, he, That's the. I know. But why don't middle class people in this country understand that millionaires should pay more taxes? That's the gazillion care. dollar. Just because. I you know the answer. Tell us <laughs> why. Why? Well, because because uh, the lie that we're fed from the time that we're children is that anyone in America can grow up to be that millionaire. So yes. in case you ever and do, you want to... Just in case, yeah. you don't want to yeah. have the tax rate yeah. too high. And right, the estate tax. They vote, the the is, death I, tax that affects nobody. It affects yes. but a point, small point you know, if you die 2%. before the end of the year, I don't right. know if this is relevant, yes. but if you felt like it, there's no inheritance tax. Right. You have there's until a, the 31st of December. There is a big incentive yeah. to kill your, your grandmother this yes. <laughs> before New Year's Eve. It's so true. Uh, but, but I saw Obama on 60 Minutes, and, and, you know, Steve Cross was trying to throw him a big softball there, you know, about this very issue. You know, basically saying, you know, the, te- the policies that the Republicans are favoring are kind of insane, you know? I mean, we, they're, they're screaming about deficits, and yet what they want is to give more money to cushion the lives of people who are already over-cushioned. Yes. And instead of saying, Steve, you got that right, they're a bunch of assholes, yes. Obama goes, uh, well, the Republicans have a different view on this. You know, he actually gives credence to their insanity. He Did does their Rand work. Did you see on election right. night? It's reckless. Rand Paul said, there's no difference between rich people and poor people in this country because somebody has to build yachts. Right. 
Well, this I'm, is, I'm has, paraphrasing only slightly. Yeah. I think I. It's <laughs> true. I think President no, Obama's. Right. I think his. I think his uh, whole attitude here is it's reckless. It's dangerous for the country. Um, he and the Democrats have to now stop them at every just employ every measure that they've been employing to stop whatever they're planning to do and and whenever they're whenever they go off and they're acting crazy and and totally fruit loopy let them be that way because their their obama's approval ratings will go up in a few months once america gets a, a little dose of uh, oh, Mitch McConnell. I, I don't know. Mitch been, McConnell. Yeah, I, and you know Mitch McConnell. You said think they're going to love this? Huh? Yeah, I mean, well, that idea that America will see America doesn't pay attention or see. You have to. America is like a dog. I'm sorry, but it is. You, it cannot understand actual words. It understands inflection. <laughs> it understands fear. But these are. The but you can't yeah, actually this, explain okay. issues okay. to a dog. These right, but this is right. No, but, but no. I. I mean, I. I, I We've had this discussion for many years. Your your complete lack of faith <laughs> in your fellow Americans I, and true. my desire to hang on sure. by the last fucking thread <laughs> <laughs> to some piece right. of optimism. I know, but but I but that dog that dog has been horribly abused, and you know what happens when the dog has been abused. The dog is gets all insane and does insane things. Right. And that dog has is being foreclosed upon. That dog doesn't know if they're going to have a job next month, whether even if they have a job now. I mean, so, so is, why vote so, for the people? No, who they didn't. Promised. They stayed home. The yeah, they stayed simple. home. They well, stayed and, and and they did a poll of the I don't know how many tens of millions it was, but it was huge that stayed home. And Obama like. He was like got seventy percent of that vote uh, yeah, yeah. of the people that didn't the, the un- didn't yeah. vote and but, young people, young people, right. twenty three million voted for him in in two thousand eight. Nine million voted in this election. The Republic the Republicans only won by five million votes in this election last week. Fourteen million young people stayed home. The other part of this though is that um, white America does not like having a black president. That's just the sad truth. That is the truth. And I'm, and I'm, he was 76% after his inauguration. No, I'm going to tell you. No, but the, let yeah. me tell you. The, day after the, the statistics in- don't lie. I'm not talking about polls. I'm talking about that the, the young people in 08 was the only, do you know this? It's the only demographic, white demographic, that Obama won. 18 to 29-year-olds. Right. The, every, the, every other demographic over 29, Obama lost the white vote. Every single one. That's how huge the young people's vote was because that's what put him over. And then he completely ignored them and forgot about them and then started texting them like a month before the election. Please come out. The young vote, it is... It is true that the youth vote was depressed this time compared to the election, but it was the same rate as every midterm election since polling began. So the rate at which young people voted was sort of static. It's sort of consistent with what we've seen before. Obama didn't get him out, but it wasn't worse than in past. No, but he midterms. had, but he had such a, he had a record number. That was a record number in 08 that voted right. and, and that voted for him. And and I mean, listen, they should have had a room set up in the annex of the of the White House with you making YouTubes and social networking and Facebooking oh, and and LOLs and OMGs and, and you know. 
but to, to my point that people don't pay attention, I thought one of the interesting aspects of this last election we have was that we have two wars going on. It was Veterans Day yesterday. Mm -hmm. And nobody on either side mentioned it. N politicians of Democrat or Republican stripe didn't. People didn't ask about it. And I was watching these shows. HBO had one with J James Gandolfini produced last night about veterans coming home from the war. And, uh, you know, to, to listen to Bush this week talk about how it was the right thing to do to go into Iraq is we took out a dictator who was, you know, his two reasons. A, he was trying to get WMD. Well, no, not really. No, he was trying to get Why? Viagra at that point in his life. That's true. Uh, and, and his other reason, you know, he was consorting with terrorists. Again, not really true. No. Yeah, we took out a dictator, but at what cost? These people, these soldiers yeah. coming home. Tens of thousands. With wounded. brain damage. That's right. Unable to. Thousands dead. All as a result of this. This was, a, this was, I swear to God, historians will mark this as the crime of the century. This phony war that he sent these kids to. And that... I don't want to. I don't want to talk about this. This book. This book should be put in the crime section of every uh, bookstore and library in, in, in America. Yeah, I, I, and, and it, it's part of this new deficit commission that we're, we're going to bring out Joe in a minute to talk about the deficit commission. Part of their plan to balance our budget, cutting health benefits to veterans. I couldn't help but think about my parents who fought in World War II, got the GI Bill. The GI Bill, which was really what they hate. It's government forcing corporations to do the right thing. Somehow that wasn't awful to that generation. Government said to corporations, these guys who just fought the war so you mm -hmm. could have a business, mm -hmm. do the right thing and right. give them the discount rate. That's right. But they forced them to do it. That's right. When you, if they, they knew that if you left it to corporations, they wouldn't have done the right, right thing. There's this, there's this famous incident in World War II where the head of Montgomery Ward... I, I gave oh, a, you brought the picture. Did, did show they, it. Do they have this here? Yes. This Please is, show um, this picture. This is the chairman of Montgomery Ward <laughs> during World War II. He refused to pay the war tax. He refused to settle or even negotiate with the Union, which was against the War Powers Act. And Roosevelt said, send in the National Guard and arrest his ass. And they, they hauled. That's the, can you imagine that today? The president ordering the, the chairman of ExxonMobil being hauled out of his office in his chair. That's the kind of Democrat that used to be president of the United States. Nowadays... Nowadays, when you see a CEO in that position, it's because he hires guys to actually carry him around. That's All right. actually what I thought that was a photograph of. Yeah, no, no. that's right. It no, does no. look like that. That's yeah. the way it used to be. That's, All right. You're a corporation. You, you have to obey the laws. You don't obey the laws. ExxonMobil paid no taxes last year. GE paid no taxes last year. And they're having a deficit commission telling us to make old people work till they're 70? Are you fucking All right. crazy? All right. We're I mean, Jay, this is Rob. There's been a lot of talk about religion on the show, and I thought you should probably hear from an infidel down in the Bible Belt. I'm in Alabama, and uh, I've been concerned about um, 
the prejudices I've heard expressed by many viewers and by some of your clips. Uh, for instance, that religious people are irrational, they can't be committed to social justice, they follow orders, and they can't think for themselves. Um, I left the Christian church at 17. I was the most outspoken atheist in my little Georgia college. And the one thing I've found over the years, I've worked constantly with some pretty surprising allies in the South. And I've learned that if you wait, you can't assume that the region can't be saved until everyone has uh, left the church and stopped believing in Jesus. Uh, there's a lot more diversity of belief. There's, uh, if you spend more than half an hour with church people, you learn they're the first to criticize their leaders. And uh, I just, while I know it's entertaining to stick to the us-men narrative, remember that narrative was scripted by Karl Rove, who cut his little fangs on Alabama state politics. You know, I know what I'm talking about, and I want to challenge your, your listeners to remember the most subversive thing you can do for democracy in this country is to talk to the people you're not supposed to talk to. Thanks. Hi, Jay. This is Michael from Glen Burnie. I just finished listening to your November 21st episode. And rather than comment on uh, the main thrust of the episode, I wanted to comment on the ongoing conversation about education. Uh, I was struck while listening to uh, the other callers and to your comments at the end that one of the things that has been overlooked in all this is that it's not the process that you choose that's the most important part uh, to, to running the education system well. And it's it's how you run that, how you implement that process and, and how well you support it and how well you refine it as you go along, adjusting for any problems that you may not have accounted for at the beginning, not to mention changes in the environment. Uh, it's just like any other business. You, you need to put the money in at the bottom floor. You need to encourage the behavior that you want to see and you need to discourage the behavior that you don't want to see. And that's that's basically my two cents, and I'd just be interested to hear what your thoughts are and what other people's thoughts may be on that, uh, on my take. So thank you so much for everything you do. Take care. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who left comments on the voicemail line to be played on the show. If you would like to leave a comment, question, activist call to action, or suggestion for a charity people should be donating to this holiday season, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. And I'm totally serious about that. I've been uh, mentioning the idea of recommending charities in kind of an offhand way in uh, recent episodes. Haven't gotten a single response uh, from anyone who wanted to uh, suggest a place that you guys uh, would put your uh, charitable dollars this year. Um, so seriously, I mean, some of you out there are making charitable donations. Just call into the phone line and let us know what you think is important. Um, and, and on a related note, I've gotten a couple of questions uh, on this recently. Uh, I guess maybe because it's coming towards the end of the year and people are thinking about it. Donations sent to this show are not tax deductible, and the reason for that is <clears throat> in order for donations to anyone, uh, you know, like me or anyone else, uh, to be uh, tax deductible, those organizations have to be 
register as charitable nonprofit organizations. And the reason I'm not a nonprofit organization is because organizations like that, in exchange for getting a huge break on what would normally be their tax burden, in exchange they agree to not, uh, you know, actively talk, uh, uh, you know, really openly about politics and advocate for a particular. Uh, parties or candidates or anything like that. And so obviously a show like mine or the Young Turks or go down the entire list of all the shows, uh, political shows that you might listen to that solicit donations, none of them are going to be uh, charitable donations, um, you know, because they actively advocate for, you know, political causes. So there's your answer on that. But of course, there are genuine charities out there that uh, are tax deductible and uh, you guys should call in and uh, say which ones are your favorite. Now, speaking of other podcasts that are not uh, nonprofit organizations, I want to make an announcement today um, that, uh, you know, exciting news that our friends over at uh, Citizen Radio have been nominated for a podcast award this year in the politics category. And here's the, here's the background story. Uh, well, first of all, Best of the Left is ineligible to be um, to be nominated in any category for the podcast awards this year because you guys helped me win the best produced podcast last year, one of the big umbrella categories. Once you win that, you're out for the next year. So, uh, so that's my position. If you look at the politics category, you'll also see uh, another friend of the show, the Young Turks, are there. Now, what I know for uh, for a fact is that the Young Turks are not pursuing a podcast award this year, although they won it last year. They're not pursuing it this year. They are uh, so-called keeping their powder dry because they're going for, uh, and I'm going from memory, I think they're going for a Webby award. In any case, you know, they're not using the efforts of their listenership uh, at the moment to try to win a podcast award because they're saving their energy for a you know bigger, better prize. So that's what's going on there. So, from the lay of the land, as it, as it were, uh, Citizen Radio is the the one you know independent progressive show available to win a podcast award this year. And so, obviously, I would encourage you to go vote for them every day, December first through December fifteenth. So you can vote every twenty four hours uh, during that you know fifteen day period. And uh, that's the entire voting process, and then we see who wins. So, you know, it's something fun that we get to do every year, a uh, little bit of listener involvement. And, you know, since Citizen Radio is a friend of the show, I'd love it if you guys would uh, lend your weight to their uh, bid for the award this year. And now I just want to say thanks to those of you uh, who had kind comments about the most recent episode I posted, uh, the, the repost, the bonus episode from May 2006. Uh, you know, it was good that you guys seemed to have a positive response to that. If you didn't like it, well, then you didn't tell me, so your voice doesn't get heard. So I'll take that as a cue for next time I need to take a break, you know, holiday or, you know, whatever. I, you know, I don't take many breaks, but when I do, I'll try to post, uh, you know, a real high quality show from the archives to give you a little blast from the past and a little, uh, you know, taste of how things used to be. So I think that'll be kind of fun. And, uh, and now I, I really just want to thank members and volunteers who have just been rocking the world. Uh, volunteers first, uh, Matt, Matt, Mike, Colette, Todd, Matt. Uh, uh, you know, Laura has been kicking ass on, uh, 
on data entry. She really, really stepped up in a big way, uh, taking initiative. Uh, Emerson on the website has been uh, a big help recently. And Katie is doing uh, some graphic design for me. And she's done it before. She's coming back and doing it again. So huge thanks to everyone uh, who's been helping out. And uh, for, for the rest of you, just the sheer number of names of people who are you know volunteering and helping behind the scenes, uh, I guess, gives you a little bit of an idea of, of how much needs to be done behind the scenes. The fact that I could even put that many people to work uh, means there's a lot to do behind the scenes. So, uh, so it gives you an idea of how grateful I am that all of that work is getting done by someone other than just me. <laughs> so, uh, so huge thanks to everyone uh, who's been helping out. And now to the members who uh, support the show directly, of course, uh, Kelly S. signed up for a $5 monthly membership back on uh, September 26th and has been sticking with the show since then. And John B. signed up uh, for a yearly membership starting just on October 21st. And John uh, went ahead and signed up above and beyond the regular membership level just to help out a little bit more. So that's you know, hugely, hugely appreciated, obviously. So huge thanks to uh, John, Kelly, all of the members, all of the individual donors, Everyone who spreads the word about the show, tells your friends and neighbors, and so on and so on. Uh, all of you guys make the show possible. To stay connected with the show and help spread the word online, of course, you can join up with us on Facebook and Twitter. That seriously helps. I think maybe the, the number one way that people find the website is through Facebook. Uh, I've been checking that recently. And so keep spreading the word. Uh, that way, it obviously seems to be working. For details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all of that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you 10 times a month. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thought black and white, It's just a fun thing.